The book is The Secret Lives of Codebreakers, and it's a social history primarily of the World War II codebreaking center in Britain uh, that smashed the German Enigma codes, which were considered by the, the Germans to be completely insoluble. The reason I came to the story is much has been written about how the Enigma codes were broken, uh, the mathematical proposition, the brilliance of Alan Turing and Professor Max Newman, and all the developments in code breaking that led to the dawn of the computer age. Uh, much has been written about that, but what I also wanted to really kind of focus on was what was day-to-day -day life at Bletchley Park actually like for the codebreakers? What, what was it like to work under that intolerable pressure, those, those grueling all-night shifts that they had to do? Um, how, what were the pressure, pressure valves? What were the releases? Um, how did they manage to hold on to their sanity in, in the midst of this extraordinary place? Imagine this. You get an envelope in the mail telling you that you must, absolutely must, get on a train and go somewhere you've never been before, never even heard of before. You get on the train one evening and you arrive at your stop late at night. It's dark. Not just nighttime. Dark. There are no lights on at the train station or anywhere else you look. You walk in the direction you're told and you soon come to what looks like a stately English manor. That, too, is dark. There is no light, but you enter the grounds, you enter the building, and you see dozens of people active and awake and moving about despite the hour. Before you can do anything, you're brought to a table and made to sign a disclosure promising that, no matter what happens, you will never, ever, ever tell anyone what you do at this estate at Bletchley Park. Keep in mind, to this point, you don't even know what you'll be doing. Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Forrest Gordon. And I'm Joanna Rowell. Today we have an episode that is, in some ways, perfect for Halloween. There's fear, there's secrecy, there's nerve-wracking tension. Mwahaha! <laughs> At Bletchley Park. But there's also dances, parties, bands, plays, and relationships that last a lifetime. All of this comes from Bletchley's Park and Sinclair McKay's book, The Secret Like of Bletchley Park, the, the World War II code-breaking center and the men and women who worked there. Mr. McKay joined us to talk about what happened at Bletchley Park. Bletchley Park was the nerve center for code-breaking in 1940s England, and code-breaking was an incredibly important activity in World War II because the Germans had a machine that, frankly, made things a little unfair. Here's Sinclair McKay. The Enigma machine, if you ever get a chance to see one, uh, Bletchley still has a few. When you look at it, it looks so deceptively simple. It looks very simply like a typewriter with lights. Uh, there's a keyboard, there's a lamp board behind it, there are brass rotors. Uh, it's a machine that can wood and bake light. And it's portable, too. It's like a, you can carry it around in a box. It's like a portable typewriter. And it does look completely innocuous. What made it particularly lethal uh, was the, the plug board or the stecker board, which introduced an electrical current. Now, this moved the rotors around in such a way that not just to produce wholly random letters, but also it managed to, an enigma machine could produce countless millions upon millions of potential letter combinations. 
Um, and on top of this, the, the Germans changed their codes every day at midnight. So it was not just a question of finding the key into this, uh, into this machine. It was a question of uh, detect, it needed a fantastic mathematical mind, really, to be able to detect any kind of patterns in the chaos that this machine could generate. And as I say, the Germans were absolutely convinced of its impregnability. Uh, they had started using it in 1926, a much earlier version of it. It was actually three Polish mathematicians who were the first to crack uh, earlier Enigma in 1932. They found, uh, they found a mathematical way into it uh, that gave actually the British a tremendous head start in 1939. Without the Polish, uh, it would have been very, very much more difficult for us. We would have been way, way, way behind. The Germans uh, made it much more complicated. They added extra rotors. Uh, they added bigram tables. They, they, as a mathematical proposition, it just got harder and harder and harder. Um, and as I say, as a result of that, they considered it impregnable, apart from some people in the Navy who were slightly concerned that the British had found a way in. But in fact, for many years after the war, uh, there were a lot of Germans who, when the Bletchley secret first started to come out in the 1970s, there were a number of Germans who absolutely refused to believe it. They, they simply couldn't believe that anyone could have found their way through that labyrinth of millions upon millions of different combinations, how anyone could have found a mathematical way through. So the Enigma machines made things very difficult for the Allies. We have another short clip from Mr. McKay. We'll play over the closing song if you want to get some idea of just how difficult it was. Yeah, it's a really interesting track that just seems to fit in the end. Uh, stick around until the end and listen to it. For now, though, let's just go with the idea that the Enigma machines and code were tough nuts to crack, and they inspired some pretty serious nutcracking hardware. <laughs> First of all, there were the bomb machines, which are massive, great things. They were like huge kind of cabinets, eight feet tall, filled with rotating drums. And basically, the, the, the aim of these machines was to try and not, they didn't break the codes exactly, but they found an initial way into them. They would, they would charge their way through thousands upon thousands of different letter combinations and, and come to a stop when a likely combination came up. And that would give the, the, the code breakers a bit of a start. The Colossus machine came along in 1944, and as I said before, the Colossus machine is reckoned by many to be the dawn of the computer age. It was the creation of Professor Max Newman and Alan Turing at Bletchley Park, together with the engineering genius of uh, Tommy Flowers, who was a, a, a partly self-educated uh, cockney man who just the most extraordinary kind of achievement um, on his part as an intellectual proposition, was to, to bring life to, to Turing and Newman's theories. And he did so uh, with bits and bobs that had been requisitioned from uh, post office stores in, the, in northwest London. What the Colossus did was it, it, it pioneered the use of electronic valves in this kind of work, which basically speeded up uh, the whole process enormously, uh, quant by some quantum amount. And it enabled them, because the German codes had become much more advanced by that stage of the war. We were beyond Enigma. We were into Lawrence. We were into the fish code. Uh, thanks to Colossus, um, Bletchley Park was in a position to start decoding messages from Hitler's desk itself, uh, and from Hitler's office itself. They were right into the heart of German high command. And that was just an unimaginable uh, triumph, an unimaginable victory. And this is uh, one of the reasons why President Eisenhower was later to say that the work of Bletchley Park shortened the war by about two years, and why George Steiner was later to, to describe the work of Bletchley Park as one of the greatest achievements of the 20th century.
Machines weren't the only thing central to cracking Enigma. People, thousands of them, were essential. In fact, even some Germans were unwittingly essential for breaking the code. It wasn't just mathematical brilliance, it was psychological brilliance too. If it hadn't been for the clumsiness of a number of the German operators uh, using their girlfriend's names or using their dog's names or signing off every message with a repeated Heil Hitler, the messages again would have been almost impossibly difficult to crack into. But there are a number of code breakers at Bletchley Park who, as well as being mathematicians, were just excellent psychologists too. And John Herrival, who I mentioned earlier, was one such chap. As a 20-year-old, he just uh, one evening settled back by the fire and just put himself inside the mind of a German operator. And he imagined the German operator using fairly kind of uh, yobbish, foul language, which they frequently did in the messages when they were starting off and when they were greeting each other. Uh, he imagined uh, the German operator using a wife's name or a girlfriend's name. And armed with this kind of this insight, he started to attack the messages in a new way. And lo and behold, they found a way in. So a combination of maths and psychological insight. That's amazing. Frequent swearing and the repeated use of a girlfriend's or a mother's name gave the Allies a handle they could use to crack Enigma. Definitely amazing. I love that story. And with that, we're going to get out of Mr. McKay's way. Sinclair McKay is a fantastic storyteller, and we're going to let him tell that story, his story, uh, the story of the men and women of Bletchley Park. We want you to hear as much of that story as we can, so Joanna and I are going to be quiet for a little while and play several clips from our interview with Mr. McKay. Mr. McKay will talk about the establishment and growth of Bletchley Park, He'll talk about the setup of Bletchley Park, how secrecy was maintained, and especially the day-to-day lives of the people at Bletchley Park. Here goes. The operation was huge. It grew as the, the years of the war went on. The house was originally bought by Admiral Sinclair in 1938 from the Leon family. It had just been an ordinary uh, 19th century country house. Uh, it was realized in the months before the war that a, a lot of properties were going to be needed to house intelligence activity because it was anticipated that London itself would be bombed immediately by the Germans. But actually Park was seized upon because it was halfway between Oxford and Cambridge for the universities to get all the undergraduates and about an hour from London too. So it was very easily, could have, uh, easily reached from all directions. Um, and the, the, uh, so when it started, uh, they started building these little wooden huts. Uh, code cracking activity started there. No one actually lived at the house except right at the very start when they had rehearsals. Uh, all the recruits to Bletchley Park were billeted in the little villages that were dotted all around the town of Bletchley. Um, uh, they were billeted with all sorts of different families and all sorts of different houses and homes. Again, the people who lived in those places had no idea what the people who were staying with them did. All they knew was that they worked up at the big institution up the road. Some of them speculated that it was a special kind of lunatic asylum. Uh, as I said, the, the, the Bletchley Park as an establishment uh, grew and grew and became an almost industrial-sized operation. As you say, uh, by the end of the war, thousands of people were working there. There were the, the young women recruits, particularly the Wren, the Royal, uh, the, the Women's Royal Naval uh, Volunteers who were working Alan Turing's complex bomb machines. These were the sort of, uh, machines that helped to get a, a, a crack into the codes. Uh, and again, all these young women were living in special places all around the Bletchley State. So in itself, uh, the, the, the fact that the secret was kept all the way through the war and in all those years beyond the war uh, was remarkable from the point of view of the recruits, even more remarkable from the point of view of all the townspeople and all the villagers who saw these extraordinary, unkempt, eccentric people coming and going and could only speculate as to the nature of the work that they were doing up at the big house. 
it was uh, a rather shadowy mystery. And uh, in fact, a, a, a number of the, the young mathematicians who were recruited directly from the universities, from Oxford and Cambridge, they, they would get glimpses of their former tutors coming back into college, and they knew that something top secret was going on, but they didn't know exactly the problems was of it. Uh, I spoke to a few veterans who remembered arriving at Bletchley Railway Station very late at night uh, in, in the darkness of the blackout when no one was allowed to show any lights because of the bombers overhead. And they remember the, the extraordinary thrill of arriving in a place where they had no idea what it was they were supposed to be doing, who it was they were supposed to be meeting, what exactly the nature of their work was. Uh, these were very young people also. They, was, they were 19 years old. They were 20 years old. Um, and so even though they, they weren't out fighting at the front, they were made pretty sharply aware that what they were doing was absolutely at the nerve center of the war effort. Then when they got to the house itself, the Bletchley Park house, is a kind of country house estate, and it's on the edge of the railway line, very near the railway station. And if any of your listeners get a chance to come to England, they must visit it. It's a wonderful museum now. The point is that when these codebreakers arrived, they were, they were taken to the house, and they were immediately made to sign the Official Secrets Act. That was the very first thing they did, and it was meant to last all of their lives. They were not allowed to say a word to friends, to family, to loved ones, about any aspect of the work that they were doing. Uh, and... Then they were, they were ushered basically to the, the departments they were going to be working in, the, the wooden huts uh, that were built outside the main house in which all the code-cracking activity could, took place. And my veterans recalled that as soon as, as soon as they got started, they were thrown right into the deep end. They were shown a German Enigma machine, uh, which didn't work, and they were told simply, right, that's what we're up against, get on with it. And they did. They weren't just mathematicians, they were, they were classicists. There was, uh, Mavis Beatty went on to become, uh, and still is, uh, a, a very, very well-renowned landscape historian. Uh, they, a number of young men and women then went on into the civil service and became the, kind of, the guiding voices of the age. There was a, home sec- a future Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins, who worked at Bletchley Park in, uh, in 1944. Uh, he went on to become one of the more influential Home, home Secretaries in the 1960s. There was, uh, although he didn't work there, there was uh, James Bond creator, Ian Fleming. He was in naval intelligence, and because of his position, he dropped by to Bletchley Park once every fortnight or so. Uh, he knew all about it. The irony about him is that while Ian Fleming was allowed, his creation, James Bond, would never have been allowed into Bletchley Park. He would never have got the clearance. Uh, so yes, and a number of uh, the, uh, a number of the Bletchley Park recruits then went on to the later GCHQ and carried on their work with uh, the American branch of that too. And that's I was particularly interested in that aspect of the special relationship, especially with, between the uh, British military and the American military of the war. It was often actually quite fractious, but on the code-breaking side, uh, it was unusually harmonious and incredibly fruitful on both sides as well. I think both sides really gained a huge amount from each other's expertise. Uh, the, the British sent America Alan Turing in 1943, and Alan Turing helped uh, the American Bell Laboratories uh, on, on futuristic code-breaking kind of activities, as well as uh, the, the development of the computer. It was a very good fertile period of, sort of cross-pollination, and as I say, it, it led to the dawn of the computer age. There's still some dispute about where exactly the computer did um, come into being. Was it through the Manhattan Project, uh, for instance, or was it as a result of the Colossus, uh, the code-breaking machine in Bletchley Park, which had been invented by Professor Mac Newman and Alan Turing? And this will be debated by technologists endlessly. But, but the fact that 
both uh, discussed, I think, so equally shows the, the, the impact, I think, that the Bletchley Park had on the war and on, uh, on, on the years afterwards. It was, it was very, very strictly compartmentalised. Uh, if you worked in Hut 3, you wouldn't know anything about what was going on in Hut 4, for instance, with the naval enigmas, and Hut 4 wouldn't know anything about what was going on in Hut 6. Um, now, this is even the case with two of the, two of the veterans that I interviewed, Keith and Mavis Beatty. Well, when Mavis Beatty was there, she was Mavis Lever. Uh, Keith and Mavis met and fell in love at Bletchley Park as codebreakers. They were codebreakers working in different departments. Uh, Keith Beatty, I think, was working in Hut 4. Mavis Beatty, Mavis Lever, was working with uh, the senior cryptographer Dilly Knox, uh, who was a classicist, and he was working on the Italian Enigma codes. Now, they met in the Bletchley Park canteen. They met at Bletchley Park dances. There was a very lively social life there. They were very, they were very assiduous uh, about providing that kind of social life. And, you know, young couples enjoyed it to the full. It, was, it could be quite a romantic place for people to be. Keith and uh, Mavis, as I say, met there. They fell in love there. They, they got married um, and remained married. But all those years afterwards, they couldn't discuss with one another exactly what they had done. This is a husband and wife who, who couldn't discuss with each other any aspects of their work until, until sort of the mid-1980s. Still less could they tell their children or, or any of the relatives. Uh, uh, no, I mean, the level to which they took it was quite extraordinary. It, it wasn't just it wasn't just husband and wife teams. There was there were there were gay relationships there too. There was uh, Angus Wilson and Bentley Bridgewater, and a, a few others too. Uh, at, at, at a time when you would think actually the authorities would frown on kind of all romance, uh, actually for some reason the authorities didn't. They were kind of wiser than that. Uh, but friendships were maintained as well. Uh, people went out into the wider world, but they still knew better than to talk. Uh, one of my uh, interviewees, the Honourable Sarah Baring, uh, who's a wonderful, brilliant, aristocratic lady, uh, knew Roy Jenkins, uh, the, the Labour politician, uh, reasonably well, and they would kind of bump into each other at cocktail parties in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and they would recognize each other, but they would never talk about the war years. I think the furthest that Sarah Baring went in that direction was to say to Roy Jenkins with a wink, BP, and he just smiled. All they could, all they could say to each other, really, was the initials of the place. Uh, so, and, and there were codebreakers like Oliver Lord and Keith Beatty who, who went on to senior positions in the civil service and who would often bump into each other at kind of, uh, planning meetings and government meetings. And again, there would be those at the moment of recognition. Uh, but together with the, the complicity of silence, they would look at each other and they would know, but no one else in the room would know. There was nothing beyond the Secrets Act, and in fact, a number of the veterans that I interviewed, uh, I said to them, what, what would have been the punishment, do you think, had you even inadvertently given away the secret? And they said that they, they, they didn't know. There was nothing in the Act that said, you will be shot, you will be hanged, you will be taken to the Tower of London. But they all kind of assumed that would be the case. And also, on top of that, the point is that England, well, Britain during the war, it wasn't just Bletchley Park that was secret. Uh, there was a general sense that careless talk costs lives. And in a much more general sense, people were very, very wary about uh, talking too openly about anything, really, for fear that they, the, 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 for fear of foreign spies dotted all around. And there weren't actually all that many, but, but, but there was a sense of wariness that percolated all the way through society. But the Bletchley people kept it to a degree now, which in an age of Twitter and instant information seems absolutely unimaginable. And in fact, a few of the veterans that I interviewed 
said that they look at the world around them now, uh, where intelligence is regularly discussed on uh, television programs, uh, the workings of MI6, and they shake their heads and they think, how did this happen in the space of a couple of generations? They were brought up uh, not just with a sense of the importance of secrecy, but also the sense of duty that could have went with that. It was was letting everyone down to let anyone know. But this in itself, uh, there were some tragic knockbacks from that. One of the people I interviewed was a brilliant mathematician called John Herrival. Uh, the Herrival tip was one of the ways that they actually managed to smash their way into the German Luftwaffe codes. Uh, as a 20-year-old mathematician, it was what, uh, an extraordinary achievement that really, really helped. Of course, after the war, he couldn't say anything to, to anyone that he knew. Uh, still less could he say anything to his dying father. Uh, and even when his father was on his deathbed, his, his father accused John, John, his son, John, of having done nothing in the war because he didn't know, and his son couldn't tell him, even though his father was dying. And that was the extent to which they took the seriousness of the Official Secret Act. It was a very grueling and sleep-destroying thing of uh, watches, like the watch on a ship, I suppose. Uh, They had a rotor system whereby you had to do night shifts and you had to do day shifts, and it was arranged week by week, so you did a certain number of nights, a certain number of days, and you would do eight hours at a stretch. Now, the eight hours doesn't sound so bad, but when your sleep patterns are all over the place, as, of course, they would have been uh, for all these people, it, it, just, it becomes a very, very daunting proposition, the idea of staying awake at two o'clock in the morning in the silence of the night, just sitting there with uh, a paper and pencil, looking at these abstract letters and keeping going to the height of your ability. It was very, very, uh, the, 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 uh, the rotor pattern was very hard on them. But as a number of the veterans told me, again, the point was that they were young, uh, and being young, they were adaptable. And they knew it was war, and that, you know, whatever they were going through, uh, imagine what the poor soldiers were going through. They all knew they had to pull together. As many of the code-breaking veterans told me, there was an attitude to, to, to just simply get on with it. Remember that most of them were very young. They were either being drawn from university, or in some cases, actually straight from uh, the final year of school. And being so young, they were quite kind of adaptable to, very energetic, very supple-witted. And... The atmosphere of the place was, I think, enough to convey to them the importance of what they were doing, even though they would get, it would be impossible for them to get any kind of feedback. You know, you're on a night shift working on German codes which basically change every 24 hours. You really don't know what it is that you're kind of getting in or what you're passing on to the war office and intelligence. You can only really have a vague idea of the significance on any night or day of what you're doing. But then, uh, and so for some people, it could be difficult. The, there was uh, the, the novelist to be, Angus Wilson, worked at Bletchley Park. Uh, he later became a very famous novelist. Uh, Bletchley Park, he found very, very difficult. Uh, in fact, there were some suggestions he had a, a proper nervous breakdown there. He, he threatened to commit suicide. And there were other, other similar stories of, of people just buckling under that, uh, the, 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 the pressure they knew they were under, but at the same time, <laughs> the difficulty of knowing exactly what it was they were doing. Having said that, uh, you know, on the other hand, most people bore up kind of incredibly well in the circumstances, and that goes not just for the code breakers, but also for those who were doing really mundane but vital work, like the, the, the very smart debutantes. These were the, the titled daughters of very kind of rich aristocratic families who were sent to work at Bletchley Park because it was considered that the more aristocratic one was, the less of a security risk one would be. <laughs> and, uh, those were the days. Uh, they had to do the file card index work, which meant that every, kind of, every reference that came in of the code to any battleship, to, to any 
member of personnel to any member of general, any scrap of information they could get would be indexed and double indexed and card indexed. And these girls were the ones who had to do what was actually mind-numbingly tedious work, uh, really terrible, but absolutely vital to the code-breaking effort at the same time, and it helped smash their way into a lot of codes uh, in being so assiduous and dutiful about it. So, as I say, the, the work was incredibly hard, but they were, they were going through they knew They knew how serious uh, it all was. There was not just a social planning office. I mean, they, they had all sorts of different clubs and societies. They had a chess club, they had a film club, but the most popular clubs of all were the ones that involved dancing, and particularly, for some reason, Highland dancing. They couldn't get enough of it. Uh, there were just people who, who were mad for Highland dancing. Uh, on top of that, they had very, very smart concerts there, and the, the, the best musicians and performers of the day, from Peter Pears to Myra Hess, would, uh, would come up from London by train, uh, give a performance uh, to the Codebreakers of Bletchley Park, and then come away again, having had no idea who they just performed for, or who these people were. It was that top secret. Uh, on top of that, Bletchley Park itself, the, the Codebreakers were brilliant at using their off-duty hours to, to put on plays, for instance. The Bletchley Park Drama Society was very popular, and indeed very popular throughout the entire local community. They, they, they toured the village halls and became extremely popular with a variety, wide variety of productions. So much so that at the end of the war, uh, a local newspaper said, uh, we've enjoyed uh, the Bletchley Park dramas very, very much, uh, their various productions. Uh, we still don't know what it is they did in that house. <laughs> but, their, but their dramatic efforts are going to be missed very much. Uh, on top of that, they had the uh, Hut 2, which was for, for beer and recreation. Uh, uh, a lot of the, the, the codebreakers enjoyed going to the pub for billiards. And so the, the nature of the work was so grueling and so intensive and so hyper-focused that it was incredibly necessary uh, for the codebreakers to have as much and as wide a variety of off-duty uh, kind of stuff as possible, really. Uh, and this includes romance, too. I mean, there was a lot of romance in the hothouse atmosphere of Bletchley Park, as you would expect, uh, in a place that some people described as their university, because it looked very much like a university college, really. It was young people, one of, a, lot of, a lot of young women and a lot of young men. And as I say, a lot of, a lot of ballroom dancing and a lot of high, highland dancing. And there were sports. There was tennis and there was rounders. And, uh, and uh, yes, uh, it, it was necessary. One veteran codebreaker wrote to me and said that it made her slightly cross when people talked about all the recreational activity they had at Bletchley, uh, in the sense that it made it sound like a frivolous place. But my response to that was that you know, if ever frivolity was absolutely necessary, it was exactly then because that was exactly what helped them to keep their sanity in the face of a job which could otherwise very easily have absolutely weighed them down. That was Sinclair McKay talking about his book, The Secret Life of Bletchley Park, The World War II Codebreaking Center, and the Men and Women Who Worked There. And while we started off by introducing Bletchley Park as kind of a spooky place, it really wasn't. There were concerts, dances, chess clubs, theater clubs, billiards, and a bar. People went there and met friends or even spouses that they kept for the rest of their lives. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but as Mr. McKay pointed out, you could almost think of Bletchley Park as a kind of college. It looked a bit like a college campus. You worked hard all the time like you were at some colleges. You kept weird hours like you were in college, and you pretty much lived in dorm-like conditions. And if you want to hear more from the Grok Science Show, whether it be to listen to another interview or hear more about this or other interviews, you can find us by searching for us on the Internet. We have our own site, 
We're on the Public Radio Exchange and the Internet Archive, and even on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Our guest today was Sinclair McKay, and we're going to let him take us out of this episode of the Grok Science Show. So stay tuned for one more clip from Mr. McKay about Bletchley Park. For Elise Kovic, Charles Lee, and Franklin, I'm for, I'm Forrest Gordon. <laughs> and I'm Joanna Rowell. One of the greatest things of being able to write a book like this is getting to meet such extraordinary people. And I just feel completely privileged uh, to have met and interviewed uh, every one of them. Uh, incredibly acute, diamond-sharp, brilliant people. And also to myself, because I'm not the most technically-minded or mathematically-minded person. And I was hoping to, to, to draw readers who were sort of similarly unmathematical in, in the hope that we could begin to understand exactly the nature of, of what these people had achieved. Uh, one of the first interviews I did was with uh, Keith and Mavis Beatty. I, I spent a day with them down in the South Coast in a lovely home. They very kindly uh, gave me lunch. It was a terrific day. And they tried to give me a beginner's crash course in code breaking. Uh, now, I don't know how mathematically minded you are. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, what they did was a feat of logic, and it was one of the things where I managed to understand it for uh, probably about 15 minutes. <laughs> and I got on the train back to London, and ah, oh, what? Uh, it's gone. And I had to literally ring them up again and again. I said, could, you, could you run that past me one more time? <laughs> I mean, that was, and that was just the, the simplest kind of uh, the, the code breaking element. How they managed to, to crack the enigma as well. We do know, as I say, much has been written on the subject. And curiously enough, the more that's written, the more there's a danger of it seeming slightly commonplace. Where, again, as you say, the enigma looks quite simple. What, what could be so difficult about that? It, if someone sat you, were to sat you, sit you down in front of that and say, right, you're in at the deep end, decode something which has 62 million million potential different combinations. Or indeed, if you ask... If you were asked to sit down in front of a Japanese cipher and told, right, get on with that, I think your head would be in your hands quite quickly.